0: This morning for our second text, I'd like for you to take your pew Bibles, if you would, and open them to page 498 in the Old Testament. And I'd like for us, if we can, to read the psalm together. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 9, found on page 498 of the Old Testament portion of the Bible. I hear rustling of pages. Are we almost there? (coughs) Hear the word of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims God's handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from the wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul." The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Our scripture lesson for the morning consists of the first nine verses of the 19th Psalm. Now, psalms are supposed to be sung, and I'm grateful that we continue with this practice here at Westminster. We just sang a paraphrased metrical version from the hymnal. Of course, Haydn had a famous setting, the heavens are telling from his oratorio creation. John said he wasn't going to sing it today, but we all know it. Beethoven has one too. It would be counterproductive if I tried to sing, sing either of them to you, but I I think it's helpful to understand some of the psalm's power and meaning to imagine that it's being sung, set to music. If, if it were me, I, I'd like to ask in our Bible classes often how would you uh, film this if we were making a movie out of it, or, or how would you stage it? And I think for the Psalms, the question is, how, how would you set it to music? In fact, Lib Caldwell said in the next two Wednesday nights for her book on the Psalms, there's going to be a cellist uh, who will be with her to kind of try to get a flavor of how these words get set to music. I think this psalm would would begin with the sound of excited strings. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims God's handiwork. But then the music would get softer. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Now louder... Yet their voice goes out to all the earth and their words, the end of the world, the heavens, God has sent a a tent for the sun which comes forth like a bridegroom leaving its chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, it's rising from the end of the heaven and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing that's hid from its heat. But now the music changes dramatically. The strings cease and there's a pause of silence and we can, can hear the incessant beating rhythmic of a drum. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true. And righteous altogether, together. That drumbeat that, that drives the second part of the psalm. My old homiletics professor Tom Long used to tell a, a story that has always helped me think about this text. When he was teaching at Princeton Seminary, Tom was active at Nassau Presbyterian Church, that beautiful church right at the gates of Princeton University. Although he was an ordained Presbyterian minister, he wasn't in ministry leadership of the church. And because of that, the pastors, he said, tentative treatment him just like any other layperson in the church, expecting him to serve on committees, teaching the junior high, things like that. One Sunday, he he said they even handed him a stack of pledge cards and sent him out to make calls in the congregation to those who hadn't yet made a pledge. And soon he said he, he found himself standing on the porch of a gracious house looking at his card in which someone had scribbled the ominous note, not very active, refused to pledge last year. He braced himself and he rang the doorbell. The, the couple came to the door. He told them he was from the church. They invited him in. They were dressed, he said, in matching tennis outfits. There were gin and tonics on the coffee table. And the, and the Sunday New York Times was spread all across the room. After a bit of conversation, Tom got down to business. You know, he said, your church is missing you in all kinds of ways, and I hope I can say something today that would encourage you to become more active in the life of the church, maybe even to the point where you would be willing to fill out a pledge card. (laughs) The words hung there for a moment in the air, and the, the man took the card and held it at a distance and said, no, I don't think so. We don't care much about the church. Tom said there was an awkward silence. It got so awkward that the man's wife felt like she needed to fill it. And she said, yes, it's true. We often feel closer to God on the tennis court or having a picnic beside the lake than we do in the church. Now, now I don't know if they were sincere, Tom said, but it raises an important question for them and for all of us, namely, what's going on in here that's better than what's going on out there? We don't care much about the church, the man said. All right? What's going on in here that's better than what's going on out there? Well, if we take that couple seriously, the first thing we have to acknowledge is that they were being quite critical of the church. And they're not alone. You probably know the statistics, the rise of the nuns, that is, those when asked a religious affiliation responded, none, has not been below 28% of the U.S. population in over the last five years. It's the most significant demographic shift in the religious landscape. Many offer reasons, posit theories, but in the end, there's not one silver bullet that's going to fix it. But we all feel that sense of dis-ease. And those of us who've been in ministry as long as Donovan and Heidi and I have seen this demographic shift coming over the nearly 40 years we've been pastors. Early in my ministry, I remember reading a book by a man named William Mule who taught at Yale Divinity School. It was written for pastors in which he said, If you were standing in the pulpit of an American church on a Sunday morning, be assured you are looking out at a congregation of people, many of whom almost did not come this morning. And in fact, of those who did come, many of them secretly fear that everybody else in the room is more confidently Christian than they are. You'll check that one night. He was serving on a panel discussion about the nature of the church, a panel composed mostly of ministers, the audience mostly lay folk. At one point, one of the pastors on the panel stood up and said, Friends in Christ... You know that the church is the place where we meet each other more honestly, care for each other more deeply, and love each other more fully than anywhere else in our lives. Mule said their audience made their faces to shine upon him as one who has said a time-honored truth. But then Mule jumped up to his feet and said, let's check that out. Forget for one minute that you're supposed to feel that the church reverend so-and-so has said, I want to see a show of hands. How many of you actually feel that the church is the place where you meet each other more honestly, care for each other more deeply, and love each other more fully than anywhere else in the rest of your lives? Let's let's see them. Well, some hands went up around the room, said Mule, but some stayed down. And one man, encouraged by honesty, stood up at the back of the room and said, as long as we're being candid, let me say that I think sometimes I meet people more fully and honestly and care for them more deeply at the office than I do at the church. What's going on in here that's better than out there? That people my old professor visited on Stewardship Sunday were not only being critical of the church in their own way, they were celebrating their religious experience outside of the church. We sometimes feel closer to God on the tennis courts or having a picnic by the lake, she said. Sounds trivial, but I think I know what she was talking about. Often when I ask in my classes, uh, what are times in your life when you feel closest to the, the holy? Or when in your life have you felt God is most present? Some will say worship or moved by one of Donovan's brilliant sermons or the anthems of the choir or a hymn. But most will say something like, when my first child was born. Or standing on the mountaintop and watching a golden sun slip into an orange and purple sunset, or 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 feeling the touch of a loving hand at bedside or, or graveside, or or walking in a forest at night under a night sky ablaze with stars. Those are the kinds of experiences where people encounter the holy. And those experiences are out there. So what's going on in here? That's better than what's out there. There, There's some help for the question, I think, in Old Psalm 19. In the psalm, the psalmist praising God with every fiber of his being, but the important notice that he's not begin praising God in here, but out there. He's not wearing an alb or even a choir robe. He's not sitting in a pulpit, chair, or in the pew. He's sitting on a hillside, watching the sun move through the sky, and as he sits there, infused with a sense of wonder and mystery in the universe, he begins to sing a song that he hears, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaim God's handiwork. Which points to one of the answers that we cannot give to the question, what's going on in here, and that is, we have God in here. God is in here, but God is out there too. God is in the galaxy and the quasar. God is in the classroom and the laboratory and the factory and the audit office. God is in the traffic jam and in the headache and in the business deal. The glory and presence and power of God pervade all of the universe. But wait a minute. The rabbis who have studied the psalm and those who knew know Hebrew poetry say that if you pay attention to the opening of the psalm, you will not only hear the, the psalmist singing of his wonder and mystery of the creation, but you will also hear some loneliness and isolation. Listen. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. But there is no speech. No words. I can't hear the voice. It's almost as if the psalmist can hear the music that is singing and reverberating through the cosmos, but he can't quite make out the words. He knows there's a, a mystery and a holiness out there, but he can't quite make out its face there's a god out there but he doesn't know what kind in fact the rabbis tell us that the name he uses for god here at the beginning of the psalm is elohim the hebrew name of the god you know is there but you don't know the kind of god it is it's true isn't it There's beauty and wonder and mystery out there, but there's cancer and COVID out there too. There are bluebirds and monarch butterflies, maple trees and green grass. but There's also malaria-bearing mosquitoes. There are moments of joy and wonder and grace and love, and there are alleyways of violence and dark moments of greed and the horror of Gaza. A few years ago, when I was on sabbatical, I was standing in Mannhausen, the Nazi concentration camp near Linz, Austria, where so many died, looking at the the crude barracks and the crematoria and the the stairs of death where prisoners were forced to carry rough-hewn 100 blocks of stone up 186 stairs out of a quarry. And out of our group, a voice came and said, what kind of God could have created a world like this. There is a God, but what kind? And that's why the psalmist moves inside. Abruptly, the language changes. The rhythm of the psalm changes. The mood of the psalm changes. Even the name of God changes from Elohim to Yahweh, the God who saves. The law of Yahweh is perfect. The testimony of Yahweh is pure. The precepts of Yahweh are right. This is temple talk. That's Torah talk. That's church talk. What the psalmist is saying is that in here we tell the story and discover the nature of a God whose power and presence fill the universe. We hear the story. We celebrate it. We believe it and we live it. And that's no small thing, because if it weren't for that story, we would perish. At the last seminary, Columbia Seminary board meeting I went to in January, we're doing work reflecting on the tenures of past presidents. There is a new president, Victor Aloyo, who preached here last year. One long-serving trustee told us about the person who was president when he was a student. The president was a, a very imposing man. He was a spiritual, intellectual giant. Although not large physically, his intellect and piety were powerful. You can even sense something, what he was like when I tell you his name. Dr. James McDowell Richards. Well, the students adored Dr. Richards. They revered Dr. Richards. They held Dr. Richards in great esteem, but they were also a little afraid of Dr. Richards, too. He wasn't a very approachable person. The old trustee said he graduated, took a number of churches, and then became a chaplain of a Presbyterian retirement and nursing facility. And after he'd been there a while, he was terrified to learn that the newest resident now... To be retired and reformed was the aged Dr. James McDowell Richards. He had frightened of him in seminary and now he's come and he has to be his chaplain and pastor. Well, he did the best he could. He visited Dr. Richards. He prayed with Dr. Richards. He read scripture with Dr. Richards. He led worship where Dr. Richards was present. He tried to be his pastor the best he could. And one evening, he went into the dining room of the facility, and there was Dr. Richards having dinner, sitting in his wheelchair. His nurse was standing beside him. He walked up to him and began an informal conversation with him. And then suddenly, and he doesn't know to this day why he asked him this, he said, Dr. Richards, I've always wanted to ask you something. Yes? You and your wife were parents of sons, weren't you? Yes. Did you ever tell your sons... That you love them? No, I'm an old-fashioned father. I didn't need to tell them. They knew. Well, one time I told one of them I was in the hospital. I thought I was going to die, and he came to visit me, and I told him, but it wasn't a regular thing. Well, I just wondered, Dr. Richards, you know, my, my father never told me that either. And you were like a father to us in seminary, and I just I wondered if fathers ever did that sort of thing meal was over and the nurse began to take dr richards in his chair to the exit and the chaplain watched him go he saw that suddenly his nurse he stopped and and said something to her and she turned the wheelchair around and brought him back to the chaplain dr richards reached up and touched his cheek and said bill i love you i knew that all along said bill But to hear him say that sealed it to my soul. What's going on in here? This is the place where we feel the embrace of God and hear the story of a God who loves you so much that he sent his only son. And at the season of Lent, this Lenten journey as we walk with Jesus toward the cross that shows us the, the dimensions, the height and depth, the width, the length of that love. And there's nowhere but inside here that we come to this table to be reminded of that and to be nurtured for the journey. So come, come to the table of grace. Amen.